We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when... By the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Or to put it another way, it's alive! It's alive! <laughs> well, we've done Dracula, so now we have to do Frankenstein. That's, oh, we do. that's the law. It's the law, because the two go together. For some reason, for some, for some reason. indefinable reason, even though they were written almost 90 mm. years apart. Because this, this was written in 1816, or at least conceived of in 1816, but didn't well, wasn't published until 1818. But still, it's a long time ago. It is a very long time ago. Um, so I have a little bit of a complicated history with Frankenstein. <laughs> um, I'm not a massive fan i love the, the concept and i love the gothic imagery that goes along with frankenstein but i really really struggle with the letters mm -hmm. and the fact that it's just a bit ploddy so do you want to talk to me about why you are so enamored I'm glad you asked. Style. I you think got we've got about six four. Hours. I we've got about four or six hours to, yeah. to discuss. So um, <laughs> we'll make it brief. Keep it keep it below double figures, perhaps. Well, what's your relationship generally like with Frankenstein as an entity? Um, I've never really been a massive fan. I suppose culturally. I guess, obviously, Boris Karloff. Mm -hmm. um, and then if we're sort of going to go forward a few years, Herman Munster in terms of the imagery. Right, yeah. Um, but I don't really... I, it's always left me a little bit cold, and I don't really know why that is. We're here to change that. <laughs> it's really interesting, uh, something that Dacre said 
if you're joining us for the first time, by the way, welcome to From Page to Screen. And uh, we've just finished covering Dracula in great detail. And our previous episode was a chat with Dacre Stoker, who is Bram Stoker's great grandnephew. So go back and check that out. It's wonderful. And we were talking about, you know, the differences between Dracula as depicted on screen and as he is in the book, he's very, very different in the book. Um, And Dacre had a really interesting point and he said it all came from the stage play Mm -hmm. and they said they couldn't put a character as monstrous and as ugly as Dracula is on stage because people wouldn't relate to the character. He had to be handsome. Mm -hmm. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because, and there was a play, I believe there was even a play of Frankenstein during Shelley's life. Um, but the the creature, you know, as we were discussing before we started recording, the creature is often referred to as the monster. Mm. And the creature is always depicted as monstrous because he is, you know, canonically in the book. He's stitched together from the bits of cadavers. Um, but the irony for me is that Frankenstein's creature is actually this incredibly beautiful soul who's who's gentle and eloquent uh and poetic and and dracula is is the monster dracula is is an actual monster but he looks beautiful if you know that's a really interesting perspective i hadn't even considered the penny just really dropped when i'm when i heard dacre say what what he said Hmm. yeah no i hadn't even i hadn't even thought about that and I suppose Dracula's um, existence, although he doesn't enjoy his existence, you know, he kind of plods along and does his own thing. And, you know, the creature has obviously been brought into existence by a human. Yes, yes. And he's punished for that. Exactly. And we talked about Dracula as the other, as the outsider. But to me, the creature in Frankenstein is the absolute other he is and and that's where all the tragedy lies because he didn't ask to be the way he was Mm. he didn't ask to be created he didn't ask to be born and all he ever wanted was to be accepted and to be loved and to have companionship Mm. and not just his own creator but society as a whole shuns him Mm. and it is devastating and that's something that doesn't really translate i don't think into the films and it was interesting that you mentioned Herman Munster because I would counter, you know, because there's this idea and my, I can't, I couldn't tell you when I first became aware of Frankenstein, you know, like Dracula, it's it's woven into popular culture. I remember putting on green face paint and being the monster one Halloween. I mean, I must have been about six or seven, you know, so it, yeah. it always existed in the peripheries of, of my knowledge. Um I have no idea when I first saw the film, the the Universal film, uh, and it's one of those films that even if you haven't seen it, you know it. You know it's alive, and you know what Boris Karloff looks like in that makeup. And you know we're only five minutes in. I'm going to mention Doctor Who in the Paul, <laughs> Paul McGann Doctor Who movie. The regeneration scene is intercut with the monster coming to life. So that was actually the first time I saw those iconic scenes oh, wow. were actually in Doctor Who. But um, but that's a that's a bit of a digression. But um, I did the book at A level, so maybe that's why 
I literally had to sit down and, and read it and, and get through those ploddy letters, which are mm. which are ploddy, and I will defend this book to the death. I won't defend the letters I understand. And I think it was kind of drilled into us, like, you've got to forget Boris Karloff. And actually, as I've got older, I've been like, no, that's pop culture has decided that that's what the creature looks like. And I love that. And that's something that we're going to come back to again and again and again on From Page to Scream. The idea that, yeah, a writer can come up with an idea, mm. but it's society that decides what they do with that idea. And, and society and, that perpetuates that idea yeah, as well. Yeah. And I think with horror, it's even more interesting mm. because it's what we find horrific or what we find monstrous. Um, but you kind of think even now, even though he's nothing like the creature in the book, when people think Frankenstein's monster, they think Boris Karloff. But I don't think they do. I said to you the other day, I think they think Herman Monster because yeah. they have this vague memory of someone with a square head, you know, um, what's the word? Shambling. Shambling around. Yeah. Um, and I asked you what your memories were of the Universal film, and you just said Boris Karloff shambling around. So you've watched it a bit more recently. Yeah. What were your What were your impressions? So my impressions are that Boris Karloff is not shambling around. No. Boris Karloff is literally trying to get used to the fact that he's been brought into existence. Mm -hmm. And you said to me, Chris, you said, look at his eyes. Yes. So I did. And I made the extra effort to mm -hmm. look at his eyes. And there's so much going on. It's hard to quantify how he must have been feeling, how the creature must have, yeah. you know, been reacting to things that are going around. I mean, obviously, when he's brought into being, it's all very dramatic. Mm -hmm. There's lots of lightning and mm -hmm. he's hoisted up, isn't he, in, in, in the film? On yeah, this yeah, big yeah. Sort of, I don't know, what would you call it? Like a sort of trolley thing I that guess. goes up. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's all powered by lightning. And, yeah. Um, but to, to look into Boris Karloff's eyes and to see... I don't know, somebody who's essentially just a shell and you don't, you, you get these kind of glimpses of emotion and fear, mm -hmm. particularly. Yeah, fear of fire. And then <laughs> fear of fire. And then later on, wanting to be accepted mm. when he meets little Maria oh. and the happiness that he feels yeah. in those few moments. Um, but I, for me having that image of the creature as compared to Herman Munster and then comparing it again mm -hmm. to the creature in the book, yeah. they're all very, very different. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, my, my, I suppose my perceptions have changed after seeing it again so recently. I love the way he moves. I mentioned his arms, the way he, and everyone thinks of him walking with his arms outstretched, but really he kind of holds them at an angle. And they mm. kind of dangle almost. And you really feel like there's somebody else's. It's like imagine somebody cut your arms off and sewed somebody else's arms mm. on and they were just hanging there, not quite right. And you couldn't quite move. Yeah, he captures that so he well. Does. I think. And he he obviously has that that sense, doesn't he? That he's not as he should be because there's one point, I think, where he grabs little Maria's arm and he looks and oh. her arm is smooth. I think he notices it and then he doesn't he look at his own yeah, stitches yeah, yeah. and realises he what re he is. And, you know, as you see him sort of progress through the film, it's devastating to see that he's starting to get this realisation that actually he's been created. Nobody mm -hmm. knows what the fuck to do with him. Mm -hmm. 
and he's alone and yeah. it is so so tragic and again very different from Herman Munster who's obviously we need to stop talking about Herman Munster. I know I know I know I know Herman Munster is not the creature um <laughs> it's like if Herman Munster is the creature then the count on Sesame Street is Dracula <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> what a mental image um <clears throat> Yes, but those those eyes are everything. So I would say to, to our listeners um, to do what Chris says and look at Boris Karloff's eyes because the there scene is so much there. Where he looks up to the sun and he reaches up mm. for it when he's first kind of become aware. Yeah. And it's to me like there's such heartbreak there and such yeah. tragedy. Yeah. You know, he plays the creature so empathetically. Um, but to go back to the book momentarily... Um, I'll give. I'll say one thing for the Universal film. It has a much better introduction than the book does. How? And I said because I knew that you weren't a massive Frankenstein fan, and I said at least it has the best intro intro scene of any film ever. With the, I think it will thrill you. Yeah, it I may know. shock you. I it know. might even horrify, horrify. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book famously or infamously begins with a load of letters. And, you know, when we talked about Dracula, we talked about it as a sort of found footage thing. And I think, you know, it's it, it's important to bear in mind kind of when this was written and the kind of audience it was written for. And Frankenstein's subtitle is The Modern Prometheus. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you are reading this with no context, you know, there's no universal Frankenstein, there's no Hammer Frankenstein, there's no monsters. You just get this guy writing to his sister, Mrs. Savile in England. And I think that you would assume that he was the titular modern Prometheus because mm. he's this explorer, you know, traveling further north than any human has ever gone. And he's driven and he's and here's a phrase we'll come back to again and again. He's single minded and he basically puts the lives of his crew in danger in order to be a pioneer and to chart new ground. And to, uh, but then they they see this thing this this abnormally large thing out in the snow, uh, which of course is the creature. And then they stumble upon a man who is Victor Frankenstein in pursuit of his creation. Uh, and so then the novel, you know, again, much like Dracula as a found document, these are presented as letters that are written to Mrs. Savile from her brother who is recounting the tale that this delirious, half-starved, half-dead, half-man has recounted on his deathbed aboard his ship. And as 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 dull as they are, and they are, I, they are, um, there are, you know, there are things worth worth, worth mentioning within them. The idea that, uh, you know, I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible. The midday sun at midnight. Oh. You know, he is, he's, he's, he's searching for something, you know, like Prometheus. It's that fire of the gods. It's, mm. it's a, you know, it's, it's a time... Of, of invention and exploration mm. and testing the limits of what the human race is, is is capable of, which is absolutely at the heart of Frankenstein. But then when he meets Victor, that becomes a cautionary tale. But yeah, but as I say, dull though these letters are, and they, they go on, I think there's about four of them, uh, possibly more. 
but I, you've got to kind of bear in mind, I think, that for those initial readers who are coming to this with no preconception, it's making it completely real. It's mm. making it completely believable in the same way that the the journal of Jonathan Harker is and, and the, the wax cylinders of Dr. Seward in Dracula, you know. Yeah, this is how people communicated with each other back then. So ah, here we go. So, yeah, so Walton uh, tells us, I've got it in the in the letter number four. We perceived a low carriage fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs pass on toward the north at the distance of half a mile, a being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature, sat in the sledge and guided the dogs. We watched the rapid progress of the traveller with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. The language is stunning. Shelley is one of the greatest writers of all time yeah, and, and I'm sorry she leaves Stoker in the dust as oh. far as I'm concerned in terms of you know Stoker achieves something magical with his story and obviously there are moments of literary brilliance but Shelley is a poet yeah and I think you know when you consider her tender age as well when she wrote this it's unbelievable she was what 18 18 18 yeah. and of course it was inspired by a nightmare mm. though they go on there's there's an oft quoted line from Frankenstein, which is, "There is something at work in my soul which I do not understand," which is just everything. But that's from Walton's letters. That's Walton talking to his sister. Um, you know, when he's talking about, "I'm going to unexplored regions, to the land of mist and snow, but I shall kill no albatross." Therefore, do not be alarmed for my safety, or if I should come back to you as worn and woeful as the ancient mariner, you will smile at my illusion, but I will disclose a secret. I have often attributed my attachment to and passionate enthusiasm for the dangerous mysteries of the ocean to that production of the most imaginative of modern poets. You know, he's not just an explorer, he's not just a scientist. Walton's a romantic. There's a lot know. going on in that brain, isn't there? There's a lot. And then when he meets Victor, there's something of a, a kindred spirit there. Yeah, and he wants to have a companion, doesn't he, Walton? He's desperate yeah. for, for yeah. some sort of companionship. And then we um, we can find ourselves exploring some possible queer coding going on Massively, that massively well. with those two, yeah. I mean, I mean how, how much do you want to get into it? Victor Frankenstein makes himself a man. <laughs> Mm, <laughs> I yeah. mean, we're, this is from page to scream. I was going to get to this much later, but uh, this is my question to you, Tara. To what extent is the Rocky Horror Picture Show an adaptation of Frankenstein? Oh. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> Eventually, it's I think about 30 pages in, Walton finally introduces Victor's story with this fantastic uh, prelude. Even now, as I commence my task, his full-toned voice swells in my ears. His lustrous eyes dwell on me with all their melancholy sweetness. He definitely fancies him. <laughs> I see his thin hand raised in animation, while the lineaments of his face are irradiated by the soul within. Strange and harrowing must his story be, frightful the storm which embraced the gallant vessel on its course and wrecked it mm. thus. So dramatic. <laughs> so then we finally switch perspective and it's in first person from it Victor's point of view. Story, doesn't it, from Victor then? 
and again you want to get to you want to get on with making a monster but there's a lot of preamble about his family and his mother and father and his strange adoptive sister who he ends up marrying Elizabeth. Elizabeth. in the first draft it was his first cousin i think but maybe even shelley decided that was too That's controversial too much, so yeah. in a subsequent draft it was rewritten to be his not a blood relative but his his sister his adopted sister and their relationship is very strange because mm. his mother adopts her but then brings her into the family home almost as look what i've brought for you victor like she's almost like a plaything for yeah. him uh and and it's kind of it, it's stated it's basically his mother's dying wish that they marry and victor professes his love for her but i'm not she only a kid as well I She's think like they're young, isn't she? quite possibly. I can't remember. I mean, they're children when they meet. Yeah, I think they're older when they get engaged. But um, it's very interesting that the way that she's kind of presented to Victor, like literally as his property, and I think that goes a, a long way to in informing his personality as a whole, as somebody who feels very yeah, entitled. Entitled, yeah, for sure. You know, when we follow Victor. And certainly when I first read it, I was, you know, I had him in mind as the protagonist um, and you you sympathize with him and you relate to him to an extent. But with subsequent readings and knowing how it is going to end influences this. But, you know, I've probably read this about four times now. And recently when I when I read it for this, I just I basically despise Victor and have no sympathy for him whatsoever. And it's really interesting what they do with that character in the adaptations. Sometimes like Peter Cushing's Victor Frankenstein in the Hammer version is just a full on cold blooded villain. Mm. Um, whereas the universal Frankenstein, he's not even called Victor. He's called Henry Frankenstein. Henry, yeah. Um, and I feel like we're supposed to see him as the protagonist. I don't know about hero, but what do you think? I think you're supposed to see him as somebody who is... I mean, I don't want to say someone who's relatable because obviously he goes out and he's, you know, digging up graves and <laughs> helping himself to brains or from various places. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I I think that... I guess at the time, he was seen to be relatable in a way, and not like an out-and-out -out villain like Dracula, for example. Um, I don't know. Talking of graveyards, there's a brilliant description of, you know, when, when he's kind of dissecting the mysteries of life. Because, you know, because Victor, you know, he grows up, he goes away to university, and he becomes obsessed with, you know... Uh, finding the, the, the source of life and like is it admirable or is he just a, a, an egomaniacal narcissist but you get some wonderful phrases like unless I had been animated by an almost supernatural enthusiasm my application to this study would have been irksome almost intolerable to examine the causes of life we must first have recourse to death I became acquainted with the science of anatomy but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect on my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life. 
Well, Victor's a fool. Because as we've talked about elsewhere, he doesn't reckon on the concept of a soul. No. And he's so obsessed with the idea of creating life in a kind of just biological, organic way. Mm. He doesn't reckon with the... The, the divine implication of being a creator of a being with a with a soul and a conscience and he says uh i saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted i beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life i saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain why do you think Victor was the way he was. Do you think that <clears throat> a lot of it stemmed from the death of his mother? No. <laughs> I really or do don't. you think he just generally was like a completely obsessive, self-serving? I think, yeah, I think he's obsessive. I think he's self-serving. Uh, serving. I think he's narcissistic. And I think his upbringing, you know, his his status, his, mm. he's from, a, he's from a, a, an affluent family. He's expected to do great things. And I think the fact that he's given Elizabeth, I think, if affects him mentally a lot yeah, when he's massive, younger. There's a massive class thing running through the whole Hugely, thing, yeah. And, and the creature, well, we'll come to the creature, is the ultimate peasant, you mm-hmm. know, living in a hovel and stealing scraps and foraging. And um, But uh, it's really interesting that in the, in the Kenneth Branagh film, which we'll talk more about later, they try to make him very much a romantic hero. And there's quite there's a scene that I find quite melodramatic where his mother has died giving birth to William and he's 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 there, he's sort of, you know, raging at God, like, no, bring her back <laughs> to me. And they really try and present him as this hero who mm. who is so heartbroken by the loss of his mother that he vows to, you know, to vanquish death. That that's not to me, that's not my interpretation of Victor Frankenstein in the book. He's he's much more narcissistic than that. Mm. Um, but what I find interesting about the Universal film, which is still, you know, the most famous one, uh, is even for people who haven't seen it, everybody knows the iconography. Everybody knows it's alive and everybody knows that Frankenstein wears a white lab coat and, you know, uh, and has an assistant called, say, called Igor. Or Fritz, or Fritz, it film? as it yeah. is in the film. I don't know when... I think Igor was in one of the Universal Karloff films. I'm not mm. sure which one he comes into. But yeah, that's something that's in the popular consciousness, even though it's not in the book at all. And actually, he's responsible, isn't he, for exactly. the, the fuck-up with the brains in oh, the film. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, what I find interesting about the character of Fritz, who is, you know... I don't need to explain this. Everybody's seen the film. And if you haven't seen the film, you know the the, the trope. He's the hunchback sort mm. of lisping master. master. <laughs> um, he is kind of presented not exactly as the villain, but he is all the blame in the in the 31 film can be laid at Fritz's door. He, he is allegedly, you know, arguably responsible that the creature turns out the way he does. Mm. And... One thing I will say about Henry Frankenstein, he doesn't react from the creature with horror and revulsion like Victor does in the book. Mm. He's 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 more cold and just curious. And actually, the reason everything goes wrong with the creature is because Fritz kind of brutalizes him and tortures him and he whips him and taunts him with fire. Uh, and ultimately pays pays the price because Fritz is is the the creature's first victim in the film. And he gives him he gives him the um, what they term the abnormal brain, doesn't yeah. he? Because he drops the normal quote, is, unquote brain on the floor, which is 
hilarious absolutely you know victor wants only the finest brain and so fritz breaks into this this lab which i you which you know i'm sure is exactly the same set used for the autopsy of lucy, lucy in the dracula, dracula. yeah sure, yeah absolutely without a doubt definitely so he only wants the finest brain and there is a it's literally labeled normal brain isn't it, it? Is, and, it, and yeah. he picks it a pickled brain in a jar he takes it out but then he drops it and instead gets an abnormal brain and we're, and that is we're led to assume why the creature is the way he is why he's the lumbering mm. murderous boris karloff um so and i messaged you about this at the time what's an abnormal brain what's an abnormal brain oh it's it's difficult isn't it to kind of quantify in the society we live in nowadays Mm -hmm. because we're very aware of ableism Mm -hmm. we're very aware of how historically people with quote unquote abnormalities in their brains have been treated so you know thinking about the concept of what we were talking about people perhaps with learning disabilities being othered because of the way they are um you can kind of see echoes of that in Karloff's creature Um, massively yeah but it's it's oh it's just it's really disturbing to think about it is because he's someone who can't communicate and doesn't understand things but he's not evil and he's not malicious a lot of the damage he does is unintentional Mm. it's because he doesn't Either he doesn't know his own strength or he doesn't fundamentally understand, like when he throws the girl into the pond, mm. it's because he thinks it's He's a game. Playing, yeah. Yeah, um, and and it's you know, it's the real horror and the tragedy that society should make a place for him and should make accommodations for him Mm. but because he's not their perceived idea of what is normal Normal. means he's got an abnormal brain they uh, otherize him to the point of his destruction Mm. and it's 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 tragic now i don't know how much of that is really intended by james whale who knows um but it's an i find it very interesting you know that because in the film and in most film adaptations the creature remains mute Whereas in the book, he's actually he's very, very, yeah, very say, eloquent, very eventually. Eloquent. Um, but, but back to Fritz a second. Even though that character's not in the book, it makes sense to me to have that character in there. Because Victor's getting these body parts from somewhere. And he's probably not doing it all on his own. I was going to say, and he's not the type of guy, is he, that no, would do his own dirty work? Not at all. And, you know, it puts you in mind of Burke and Hare and things like that. You know, it, it, it did happen mm. that, you know, trainee doctors and, and scientists would need body parts to, to, to study or to practice with. And they couldn't always ob- obtain them morally or legally. So this, you know, it's... And there, and it does, you know, because Kevin Lyons... Well, sp- spoilers. Um, we're... We've recorded a, a discussion solely on the Hammer Frankenstein film with the wonderful Kevin Lyons, which will be available on our Patreon soon. Um, but he reckoned that the body, the, the use of body parts to create the creature, isn't in the book, and I'm, I don't want to, you know, be on record disagreeing with Kevin Lyons, but I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite clear what's happening and how he's getting his bit and there are some wonderful descriptions of and you know she's very vague about exactly how it happens and where and but she says who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as i dabbled 
among the unhallowed damps of the grave, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay. My limbs now tremble and my eyes swim with the remembrance. But then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seem to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was, indeed, but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness so soon as, the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from charnel-houses, and disturbed, with profane fingers, the tremendous secrets of the human frame. In a solitary chamber, or rather, cell, at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery or staircase, I kept my workshop a filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets in attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation, whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion. He's just relentless. Like, he just doesn't stop. Does he, he doesn't. And that, and that, that description of disturbing the body and the, the the grave with profane fingers mm. and we talked about victor frankenstein as a sort of anti van helsing yes he he's he's fully aware of what he's doing he knows it's wrong but he just can't help himself he can't stop himself from doing it because it is a literal you know obsession that has just completely taken him over to well, <laughs> to the expense of everybody else around him as well. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, there's the iconic It's Alive scene in the film where there is a full-on, what we can now call a mad scientist laboratory with, I don't know, Tesla coils and, and exploding things spinny and things. spinny things and electrical things. and But all we have is the, is the bit I read earlier with the instruments of life. And a lot, you know, a lot is made of like how the creature is made or what he's made from. But I think that's kind of missing the point. The point is that he, he creates something. Uh, you know, he plays God. And then the moment it comes to life, he acts with utter revulsion. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing. His teeth of pearly whiteness... But these luxuriances only formed more a horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun white sockets in which they were set. His shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardour that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. 
you fool, Victor. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done? And it sort of, it, it, it does beg the question, what did he think was going to happen? Like, you get what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. He's been, you know, profaning charnel houses and graves and... You know, he he's taken body parts, mm. sewn them together, and animated them somehow. Let's say with electricity, with you know, with galvanism, whatever <laughs> Shelley was was fixating upon at the time. Um, and of course, it's hideous, but it ma- it almost makes you wonder. You know, what did he think was going to happen? Did he think that simply restoring it to life would give it vitality? And that the you know that the cheeks would would bloom and the blood would flow, but I think the perversity is that actually no, it's just continuing to rot, even though it's physically alive with its its yellowy eyes and its its horrible flesh yeah. and it's 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 still fundamentally dead, I was isn't say, it? Say he, he's messing with dead bodies. Yeah, so. and it's you know what he was talking about earlier about not um, you know not having superstitious fears. And it's like the one thing he didn't reckon on was the soul and he's created life, but I don't think it's the kind of life he thought. He's in in that kind of very, you know, mad scientist, organic way, he's failed because the thing he's created, like, it isn't right. Mm. It's still dead. It's still vile. And yet he's given it sentience. Mm. And that's... That's you know at no point did he talk about sentience or or heart or or soul. It was all about the concept of life, life yeah. and it's like he hasn't fundamentally understood what life actually is. His pleasure, I suppose, comes from the the act of doing it, the act of saying, you know, yeah. I have created life, and you haven't. You've created. A walking cadaver essentially yeah which he then basically leaves to die and he's so he's just so utterly utterly uh hor- horrified and he has this dream about elizabeth his fiance slash sister in the bloom of death i embraced her but as i imprinted the first kiss on her lips they became livid with the hue of death her feature appeared to change and i thought that i held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms a shroud enveloped her form and i saw the grave worms clawing at the folds of flannel oh grim <laughs> it's almost almost dare I say a bit shining that he's mm. got his beautiful young bride but then she starts to rot in his arms and that's you know it's the horror of what he's just done and what he's just seen I thought I'd created something be- he says that doesn't it beautiful mm. I thought ah beautiful yeah. um uh and then he wakes up and it's there it stood over him and he says, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remain for the rest of the night. What a bastard. Absolute <laughs> shit. And when you think about how innocent mm. the creature is as well. And he, 
Oh, no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. And talks about how he passed the night wretchedly. You think, mm. well, how do you think the creature oh, felt? Say, he's just like, come he's so to selfish. life. The victim here is the creature. Mm. And, you know, you think about the far-reaching impacts of Victor Frankenstein's actions on the community around him as well. Mm. And his own family, and his imminently. Own family. Because, of course, that's what happens next. He thinks, oh, well, I'll go back to my my family and my you've unlocked you know, the box now yeah you can't go so back. He, he has a letter from elizabeth my dearest cousin you have been ill very ill and even the constant letters of dear kind henry are not sufficient to reassure me on your account you are forbidden to write to hold a pen yet one word from you dear victor is necessary to calm our apprehensions for a long time i have thought that each post would bring this line and my, my persuasions have restrained my uncle from undertaking a journey to ingolstadt Poor Elizabeth as well. She's just sat there at home for years waiting for mm. him. He doesn't even write. He doesn't, you know. And that's uh, we haven't even mentioned Clavel, their, their, their friend. Um, but, uh, yeah, and she mentions uh, Justine Moritz, who uh, is, a, is a member of staff in the, in the Frankenstein household. So when Victor eventually travels home, it's to terrible news. It's that William, his his very, very young brother, is dead, murdered. And then they find Justine mm. asleep in a barn holding a locket that had belonged to William. And so she is, is blamed for his death. And you get that in the film slightly as well. It, it, not, not, it's not literally the brother, but you get, you get, the murdered child and then the the renter mob all all out for justice it's devastating that part of the film i really struggled with watching it the scene where he's just walking into town holding his daughter yeah you know, it's awful it's isn't just it? awful but it's the reactions of people around yeah. him as well yeah, yeah. because like at first they don't they react don't, yeah they're yeah. just they're just completely blank aren't they and then when people realize what's happened there's mm. not a lot of compassion it's just anger like yeah. who has done this and yeah. we, you know so we're talking a lot about the universal version but what do you make of the 90s kenneth branner frankenstein i don't know because it's been so long since i've seen it i can't mm. actually remember <laughs> So I need to do a rewatch of that one. It's like we're Pronto. saying, you know, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein always seem to come hand in hand. Mm. Uh, and, you know, cynically so sometimes. And it's, you know, it's like Dracula made Universal a lot of money. So then they did Frankenstein. And then with Hammer, they did Frankenstein. And then they got the rights to Dracula. And it happened in the 90s. You know, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula was such a huge hit that, you know, it was inevitable, wasn't it? That we were going to get not just frankenstein but mary, mary shelley's, shelley's frankenstein. frankenstein yeah i think i've got a vague memory of like billowy shirts yeah and you know it's very melodramatic lots, yeah very very melodramatic but i rewatched it last week and i was quite disappointed i'd not seen it in 20 years and something we talked about a lot with coppola's dracula was this idea that it's yeah okay it's bram stoker's dracula in the sense that it follows the beats of of, of the novel and is very accurate in a lot of ways but it's still very much its own story it has its own tale to tell mm. whereas i feel like kenneth branagh doesn't really have anything to say in his frankenstein it's literally just putting the story on screen so what 
what's the creature like? Because I can't. It's Robert remember. De Niro. Oh, is it? Which I don't think was the best choice. And I'm I'm watched it as a teenager, and I thought it was great because he looks grotesque. He doesn't look like Boris Karloff. He looks like Robert De Niro. He learns to speak. He becomes eloquent. We're, we're kind of straying into stuff that we'll talk talk about on the next part, really, in the the second volume of the book. But a lot of the actual dialogue in fact i don't think any of the creatures dialogue in the film is from the book which to me just seems like a hugely wasted opportunity because they're the best parts of the book and it just i don't know there's something about it that just doesn't quite work although yeah, i say it is very overblown very melodramatic very over the top and justine's death is is ridiculous actually, in that film listeners can't see this but i'm actually sitting here googling images on my phone <laughs> and i'm um, i've just been confronted with the image of Robert De Niro. Um, he still looks like Robert De Niro, though. He looks though. like That's Robert De Niro with a little scar on his head. What I what <laughs> I do like is um, the the head of the creature is taken from uh, Professor Waldman in the film. is played by John Cleese of all people, uh, and they I think there's a, a smallpox ep- epidemic or something. There's some sort of epidemic, and so they're they're bringing people in to vaccinate them, uh, and there's this guy who's an anti-vaxxer, an old-school anti-vaxxer, and he's sort of kicking up, you can't put that poison in me, and he ends up stabbing Waldman. Um, and I think Waldman's brain ends up in the creature. But it's actually Robert De Niro who plays the anti-vaxxer guy, who is then, he's then publicly hanged for the murder oh, of, of okay. the doctor. And then Victor sneaks back and cuts him down from the gallows and, and takes his head. But yeah, the, the the Justine scene is very very heightened. Lots of angry mob mentality because she, you know, she's everyone thinks she's murdered this child that was in her care, mm. and and it's it, it all happens so quickly. She's just sort of like strung up basically, and Victor's, you know, because Kenneth Branagh's Victor is this kind of romantic hero, like no, please. Whereas I don't think Book Victor is he not. Is he as self-serving as the Victor Frankenstein's that came before well, him? He is, and yet. Because, it, you know, in terms of everything he actually does, and mm. yet it, I think it's kind of performed and, and you know, presented as if he's supposed to be this this gallant hero who's who's just trying to advance humanity. And I don't know. I think, I, I definitely think we're supposed to sympathise with him more than I do. Mm. But of course, it wasn't Justine that killed William because eventually having having a, that's the weird thing he just abandons ingolstadt he leaves the creature for dead does he does he what hope that it will go away does he just hope that none of it ever happened um but uh oh here we go william dear angel this is thy funeral this is thy dirge he's saying about a, a, an electrical storm as i said these words i perceived in the gloom a figure which stole behind a clump of trees near me i stood fixed gazing intently i could not be mistaken a flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me its gigantic structure and the deformity of its aspect more hideous than belongs to humanity instantly informed me that it was the wretch the filthy demon to whom i had given life what did he hear could he be i shuddered at the conception the murderer of my brother no sooner did that idea cross my imagination than i became convinced of its truth my teeth chattered and i was forced to lean against a tree for support the figure passed me quickly and i lost it in the gloom nothing in human shape could have destroyed that fair child he was the murderer 
(laughs) (laughs) What do you do with that? Gosh. But after the death of, well, the execution of Justine, the unjust execution of Justine for a murder she did not commit that Victor is wholly responsible for, um, that's the end of the first volume. And it has a really wonderfully melodramatic conclusion. From the tortures of my own heart, I turn to contemplate the deep and voiceless grief of my Elizabeth. This also was my doing, and my father's woe, and the desolation of that late so smiling home. All was the work of my thrice accursed hands. Ye weep, unhappy ones, but these are not your last tears. Again shall you raise the funeral wail, and the sound of your lamentations shall again and again be heard. Frankenstein, your son, your kinsman, your early much-loved friend, he who would spend each vital drop of blood for your sakes, who has no thought nor sense of joy, except as it is mirrored also in your dear countenances, who would fill the air with blessings and spend his life in serving you, he bids you weep, to shed countless tears, happy beyond his hopes, if thus inexorable fate be satisfied, and if the destruction pause before the peace of the grave has succeeded to your sad torments. Thus spoke my prophetic soul, as, torn by remorse, horror and despair, I beheld those I love spend vain sorrow upon the graves of William and Justine, the first hapless victims to my unhallowed arts. He gets it now, doesn't he? (laughs) Take the responsibility. Have some accountability for what you've done. I love that it concludes with that phrase, my unhallowed arts. Mm. Because I can't believe we got this far into the episode, but you can't talk about Frankenstein without talking about Lake Geneva. And and Byron and Percival Shelley and John Polidori. All of this, yeah, where it all started. So they were they were away, weren't they, for a little break away in Lake Geneva, and I think the weather was particularly inclement. It was at this time. Wasn't it known as basically the year without sun? There was volcanic ash all over Europe. Everywhere was dark and gloomy and the universe birthed Frankenstein. It said Okay, we need some gothic literature yeah. now. We need a dreary night. We need a year of dreary nights of November. I think it might be... T- we, when we did Dracula, you gave us some fantastic, some fantastic facts did. about Dracula. I think it's time for some fantastic facts. There's a whole heap of real-life inspiration behind the story of Frankenstein. And though this pod is called From Page to Scream, we're going to go from fiction to fact. Here's some franktastic facts that you may not have known. Mary Shelley's life was packed with rebellion, risks and sorrow. But she gave us one of the most enduring horror creations of all time. And as a teenager too. Did you know that Frankenstein was the result of a competition to write a ghost story? The 18-year-old Mary was on holiday in 1816 with her lover, Percy B. Shelley, their friend Lord Byron, and Byron's physician, John Polidori. Bored and frustrated with the dreadful summer weather which confined them indoors, Byron challenged his friends to write a spooky story, and Mary's was voted the best. It was published on New Year's Day, just two years later, when Mary was 20. But no one initially knew that the book was written by a woman. 
500 copies of the novel were published anonymously in three volumes. Some critics and other writers thought that Percy Shelley had written it. He did actually help Mary edit her manuscript, but Percy suggested she change just 4,000 words out of a total 72,000. In any case, Mary rewrote the novel for a second edition, published in 1831, tweaking the plot as well as making some stylistic changes. A thought-provoking cocktail of chat about the supernatural and the origins of life, including competing theories about electricity, set Mary's imagination racing on her Lake Geneva holiday. One night she lay awake picturing what it would be like for a scientist to give life to something that was dead and how he would react when the creation started to move. She scared herself so badly that she had to snap out of her reverie. Mary Shelley's mother was none other than Mary Wollstonecraft, the 18th century radical three-thinker and the woman most often credited with kick-starting feminism. A writer, philosopher and advocate for female equality, Wollstonecraft authored A Vindication on the Rights of Woman in 1792. This pioneering work argued that the education and empowerment of women would only aid and advance society, marriage and the family. Unfortunately, Shelley never got to know her mother. Wollstonecraft contracted an infection in childbirth and died a few days after her daughter was born. But Mary carried the flame of her mother's rebellion inside her. As an openly bisexual and polyamorous woman, she lost her virginity to Percy Shelley either on or next to her mother's grave at St Pancras Churchyard, where they met for their illicit trysts, as Percy was already married. It doesn't get goffer than that. Oh, wait. It does, because some years later, when Percy drowned at sea and was later cremated on the beach, his heart refused to burn, and Mary kept the calcified heart in a drawer, wrapped in a silk shroud for the rest of her days. I can't really put into words my love for this this person, this writer, this this absolute fucking inspiration. Um, and I love that she f- concludes that first section with the phrase uh, unhallowed arts, because as I mentioned, the idea for this story came to her in a nightmare. And she describes it as, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, then on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away, hope that this thing would subside into dead matter. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening the curtains. Ooh, yes. I don't like that last line at all. <laughs> happy place, happy what, place. What were four poster beds invented for, if not to just terrify people? <laughs> so the, the, there's the section I read, uh, read? The, the radical section I read at the beginning of this episode, the, it was on a dreary night of November, is one of my favourite passages in all of literature. And what really interests me is that, you know, obviously this came from a, a ghost story writing competition, which I think Mary Shelley won. I think it's fairly safe to say that she won. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, she wins every ghost story mm. writing competition. Um, but when she first started writing it as a story, and I've got, 
before me a beautiful reproduction of her actual handwritten manuscript. It begins, it was on a dreary night of November, it begins with the creation of the, the creature by the student of unhallowed arts. I think, yeah, she knew. She knew that's what it was all about. But I think it's only when she expanded it to become a novel that she goes back into, you know, I need to actually, to make this incredibly incredulous thing credible, mm. I need to flesh out the world and make it real and make it believable, make Victor Frankenstein somebody who could have existed. And, and I, you know, and that's why I will defend those letters from, from Walton. It, it grounds it in this, some might say, too mundane a reality but it's 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 a mundane reality it's not even mm. yeah i'm on this this ship you know uh, uh, embarking on this uncharted voyage but it's not even about that it's it's a letter to his sister in in yeah, england just it, sat it, there you know probably embroidering yeah i suppose it does what dracula does it brings yes. you know something that is arcane into a very safe sensible sane world doesn't it she says i busied myself to think of a story a story to rival those which had excited us to this task meaning the ghost story competition one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror one to make the reader dread to look around to curdle the blood and quicken the beatings of the heart if I did not accomplish these things, my ghost story would be unworthy of its name. I thought and pondered, vainly, I felt that blank incapability of invention which is the greatest misery of authorship. So if you ever feel like you've got writer's block, just remember <laughs> that Mary Shelley thought for a minute, oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this, and then had a hideous nightmare and said, no, wait, hang on, <laughs> I'm going to revolutionise. I mean, inspiration comes from the most unlikely places, doesn't it? It does. Well, that wraps up our discussion of Volume 1 of Frankenstein. Like Victor, we have finished, and the beauty of the dream has vanished, and breathless horror and disgust has filled our hearts, and hopefully yours too. If you can't wait till next Thursday for Part 2 of our Frankenstein discussion, then why not head over to our Patreon uh, for even more Frankenstein content. Talking of, of Cushing, I think his my favourite moment of his in this film has got to be the uh, uh, could you pass the marmalade? Might pass the marmalade, <laughs> and it's such a wonderful <laughs> bit of direction as well because something horrible has yeah. happened, and then bang, there's this cat, and he's just sitting at the breakfast yeah. table, being very mundane <laughs> and boring. Pass the marmalade, and and it's, it's wonderful. Like, it is, it's terrific because it shows, I think, or underlines just how callous he is. Mm. He's done this awful thing, or allowed this awful thing to happen. And then he, you know, gets up next morning and has some marmalade on toast as if nothing has happened. I mean, what a horrible, horrible man. <laughs> that was a little clip from our conversation with the walking encyclopedia that is Kevin Lyons about Hammer's The Curse of Frankenstein, starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. You can listen to that bonus episode over on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash from page to screen podcast where for just six dollars a month you can become one of our coffin bookworms as well as regular monthly bonus episodes you'll have access to exclusive content and a full schedule of the books that we'll be covering on from page to screen this year 
If you want to join in the discussion, get in touch. You can email us at fptspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at fromPageToScream.podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to From Page to Scream wherever you get your podcasts to be notified every time we release a new episode here on our main feed. And join us again next week for part two of our Frankenstein deep dive, in which we'll be covering volume two of the novel, where we finally get to hear the creature's story in his own words. (laughs) 